we're going to jump together to 1 Samuel chapter 14 as I uh, pull this up here. There we go. We made it. We survived. Good job. I, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the series, and I, I want to jump in specifically into 1 Samuel 14 and talk through something really important. But before we do, just as a moment of prayer, I'd love to take a second and pray. If, if you guys have been witness to everything that's been happening in Israel, I think it's important that we as the church take a second and we stop and we pray. And I know, obviously, complex uh, issue, and this is not something we're necessarily solving in our prayer in this moment, but it's something we're interceding for. And I, I've always felt really drawn and my heart really torn for the people of Israel because they have the law, they have the prophets, and yet they, unless they're Messianic Jews, in which case they've received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, unless they're part of that group, then they have the law, they have the prophets, but they've rejected Jesus Christ. And our desire is that they would come to know Jesus. And, and my prayer has been with all of the war that, that, I mean, literally they've declared war, that this could be a moment that the children of God, the people of Abraham, that their hearts would come to Christ, even amidst difficulty, that their hearts would be drawn by the Holy Spirit into a relationship with the Most High God, that they would be protected, that they'd be victorious against their enemies, and uh, that God would give them deliverance. So I'm going to pray this morning, and I and I just invite you to join us in, in prayer. As a church, we're called to pray for Israel. And so we're going to take time to do that this morning because we believe it's important. We believe we have a unique relationship to the people of Israel. We're going to pray together. Lord, we pray right now in the name of Jesus for your children, Israel. God, we pray for their deliverance. We pray for their protection. God, we pray for those who have been taken captive, that they would be released. God, we pray for any schemes of the enemy, that they would be destroyed. And God, we pray that in all things, that there would be a mighty turning to you, Jesus Christ, that if ever there was a moment, that now would be the moment that the Holy Spirit would come upon that nation, that they would experience you like never before, and not only operate in the law, but in they would receive the one who has come to fulfill the law, that is Jesus Christ. So we pray, give them victory in the physical and give them victory in the supernatural, in the eternal, through relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. How many of you are ready to jump into the Word of God today? All right, let's do it. I'm preaching like over this direction mostly. Um, I, I want to jump into 1 Samuel 14. I want to give you guys some context. Last week, we talked about Saul prepping for battle. And one of the things I mentioned is they were coming against this, this large group of the Philistines. And they had no swords and no spears. How many of you remember that? Right? No swords, no spears. And they were afraid, and I think understandably so. And so they were hiding in rocks. And by the end of the day, they only had about 600 men, which was dramatically uh, outnumbered. And in the midst of this process, everyone is either on the run or they have They've literally like left the country. So things are not looking good for the people of Israel. And Saul has been a little uh, brash and he's made some choices about sacrificing because he was operating out of a place of not trusting God. And I'm going to tell you the number one theme in this whole series is going to be trusting God. In fact, the number one theme of our whole life really is trusting God. 
If you went every day and just said, you know, I'm going to grow a little bit more in trusting God, that would be fantastic because that's kind of the summation of everything that we will always talk about will come down to this idea of trusting God. But I want to read to you from 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. It, this part won't be on the screen. I just want you to hear because it's going to give us some context of what has happened. Remember, Israel only has how many swords? Two. Two. Zero is a good guess, too. Israel, they don't have any. Jonathan and Saul, they have swords. There's two. And they're hiding in caves. And here's what happens. It says, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1 says, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Okay, this is the start of something. It says, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Somebody say ephod. Okay, I'm going to explain the ephod in a little bit, but he's wearing that. Ahijah was, was a priest and he's wearing an ephod. It's like a breastplate. I'll explain it in a little while. It says, He was son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. If you remember from earlier, Eli was the one who raised up Samuel, so he came before. And they were the Lord's priests in Shiloh. So these are the Levitical priests are with Saul, but Jonathan is going somewhere else. It says no one was aware that Jonathan had left. And it says on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, the other Sena. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash. You guys remember Michmash from last week? Michmash. The good name for, you know, your firstborn child. The other to the south towards Geba. And Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. That feels a little inappropriate, right? Well, he's making a comment. He's saying that the men who are not in the covenant of God, he's making a statement. He's like, let's go over and take on these guys who are not, he's saying a lot by saying a little, those people who are not in covenant with Yahweh. And he says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. He says, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said, Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Man, those are some good bros, right? You're with your buddy, you're like, listen, we have a sword, right? Let's go to these people who are not in the covenant and let's just see what God can do. And then your brother looks at you and is like, I'm with you, heart and soul. Awesome. Jonathan said, come on. We will cross over towards them and, if, and, and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up to them because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands, which is kind of wild. He's saying, if they see us and they say, hey, wait, we're gonna come to you, come down where you are and fight you there, 
He's like, then I don't, I don't know. But if they say, do the strategically unwise thing, which is to climb a cliff and exhaust yourself and open yourself up to attack, then we know that that's a sign from God that we're going to win. And that not only that we're going to win, that he's given them into our hands. Are you with me? Jonathan is seeing the impossible as opportunities to prove that God is on their side. Does this guy seem a little different than Saul? Yeah? Like he's saying, let's make it even harder for ourselves so that we can prove that this is God and not us. Like John... Not only 600, we're talking two dudes who are climbing and scaling a cliff to go fight 20 people. And so both of them showed themselves, verse 11, showed themselves to the outpost. Look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in, right? They're mocking them. It says the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come up to us, then we'll teach you a lesson. Okay. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. So he's scaling a rock face, right? Are you with me, right? He's not walking up a hill. He's climbing up a rock face. And it says the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. So what happened is that the guy with the sword would go in the front and the, the armor bearer, the shield bearer would go behind carrying what he needed and, and he would have like a club and the, the guy would go in the front and he would fight and stab and as people fell, the armor bearer would come behind and just whoop, and just kill them as they went, which is pretty BA, right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a dude. I'm into that. I'm like, let's go. And so they would walk in succession and, and they fought 20 men. And that is pretty cool. They were probably pretty shredded and pretty capable, but two men fighting 20 is statistically probably impossible, except for what the Lord was with them. And Jonathan says, it's not us. It's God who was with us. I love this. I love the amount of faith that is occurring here. And if you just stopped here, you'd be like, man, Israel's going to be fired up. They're going to be crushing people. I mean, this is crazy. Jonathan, that, that's the dude that should be king, right? He has, he's trusting in God. He's going out in faith. When they're all hiding in caves, he's like, bro, let's sneak out and just get some people, right? Let's do something impossible for God. Well, everyone's afraid. We don't believe that the enemy has victory. We believe God has victory. Look at verse 15. It'll be on the screen. It says, Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It says, It was panic sent by God. So look what happens. Jonathan says, Listen, we're warriors. Let's do what warriors do. Let's go war. But only if God gives us favor. And here's going to be the sign, Lord. If he says this, we're going to go up. And then when they do go up, it says that they're victorious, but then something awesome happens. The army begins to freak out. Why? Because two guys in an army they don't consider very good just took out an entire outpost like John Wick style, right? And so now they're afraid. And so what does God do? 
God sends an earthquake into the camp. So already the army would have been, because they were pagan and very superstitious, they would have had their own gods and idols they would have sacrificed to and done all kinds of things. And they would have been like, oh man, maybe the gods aren't for us. The gods aren't with us, right? And so then the earth begins to shake. They freaked out. And it says, God sent a panic into the camp. So right now, God is winning the victory for Israel. Are you with me? And you would think this is pretty cool. But there's a problem is that the leadership is going to go all wrong here because of a lack of emotional maturity and spiritual maturity present in the leadership of Israel and Saul. Here's verse 16. It says, Saul's lookouts at Gebeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who's left us. They're like, why are they freaking out, right? When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was still talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Okay, I want to pause here for a second. I, there, here's a little bit of just Old Testament teaching today. So there's some words that we've seen. One is the ark, one is the ephod. And when you look at specifically older, you know, the, the original documents, that there is a little bit of, okay, was it literally the Ark of the Covenant or was it the ephod? Was it another instrument of the Lord? And there was this thing that the high priest wore called an ephod, and it was like a breastplate and, and um, almost would look like a piece of armor in a way. And it had 12 stones, and they were for the tribes of Israel on the front. And within the ephod was a compartment that held two smooth stones. It held the, a stone named Umir and a stone uh, named Thumin. And these stones were, the, were one of the ways that the priests would seek God and receive a yes and no answer. Follow me. This is just, if you like history, this is for you that the priests would seek God, they would reach in and they would be praying and their hands would be in the ephod and they would be praying. And when they felt led by the Lord, they would grab one of those stones. And one of the stones was the stone of light that meant yes. And it would literally or figuratively, again, this is ancient history, uh, be light. And then there was a stone of no, there was a darker stone. And so they would reach in and as led by the Lord, they would pull out one of the stones. Kind of interesting, right? And so what is important for us to understand is not the totality of ancient uh, ritual in seeking the Lord, but that what was occurring is that the high priest in that moment was seeking God. His hand was in the ephod. He was seeking God. And Saul sees an opportunity and goes, no, stop, pull your hand out and be done. Just like, because I'm going to go. Are you with me? So what's happening is in this moment, he brings, he does everything he's supposed to do. He's like, hey, we're, we're seeking the Lord for what he wants us to do. And the priest is praying and seeking God in the holy posture as prescribed by the Lord. And in the midst of it, Saul gets impatient and he gets impulsive and he sees his opportunity begin to melt away his opportunity for victory, his opportunity for greatness. So he responds emotionally. Have you ever responded emotionally? 
Have you ever been a little rash? Right? And he says, listen, we don't have time to wait. We got to go into battle, man. Look, look at what's happening. Mind you, he's not responsible for any of it. Only God is. But he's like, listen, so when he says withdraw your hand, it's not simply like he had his hand out and was causing the tumult. He had his hand in the ephod seeking God. So what Saul is saying is in his emotion, in his panic, in his anxiety, he's saying, listen, we don't have time to seek God. We just got to go get the victory. Is that a problem? Yes, the church said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it is a problem. It's a problem when the leader of Israel responds emotionally in a way that says we don't have time to wait on God. So I'm going to tell the priest what to do. That's a problem. Draw out your hand. I mean, what if it had been no, right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 19 says, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all his men assembled and went into battle. And they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. And it says, those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So we got some traitors who popped back onto the winning side. And verse 22 said, when all Israelites who had been hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So now we have the cowards jump back in. It said, so on that day, the Lord, look at who it says saved them. The Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avon. See, on the surface, I think we would say, wow, that's a really good thing. They won, Right. But they were already winning before they went in to win. Are you with me? Because who won the battle? Somebody, uh, uh, 10 extra credit points. Who was winning the battle? The Lord was winning the battle. 10 extra credit points to everyone today. What did Saul do? Saul saw confusion. He recognized it could be his moment for glory. And so he tells the priest, listen, we're not waiting on God to answer. We're going now. Saul was responding and reacting to the, emo to the emotions of the moment with anxious leadership. This was an emotional decision. This was not a wisdom decision. This was not a God-seeking decision. This was an emotional decision that came from anxiety. We need to go out there, withdraw your hand. And this is where we begin to see a problem. See, when difficulty arises, when Saul is experiencing just a wide range of emotions, as all humans and all leaders do, the question is, will he be mastered by them or will he submit them to God and follow his leadership? Will Saul cling to the rock of God and trust in him and his timing or will he be just be up and down like a roller coaster? Have you ever met a roller coaster person? You don't need to indict yourself, that's fine. Right? We've maybe all had a season where we've kind of been the roller coaster person. I'll make it even easier. I've had a season where I've been tired and exhausted and I've been the roller coaster person. That makes you feel better, right? Where when it's good, it's it's really good, and it's like, yes, things are better. And then when it's bad, it's really bad. And it doesn't take a lot for it to be bad. It's like 32 good days and then one kind of hard day, and then everything's the worst. Right? And we're just, people are trying to catch you on the up or the down, and they're hoping that they're with you in the right time and emotionally, right? It, it becomes difficult to follow. Roller coaster people. You guys know who I'm talking about? 
When difficulty comes, it's like the darkest ever. Even if that difficulty is like a flat tire, it's like everything, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. God has forsaken me, right? Because emotionally we're exhausted and so we're just riding that roller coaster. Up, down, over and over and over. That's Saul. Saul reacts to what he sees and he lets his emotions run away from him. See, today should be a great victory, but look what actually happens. My Bible titles this next portion, um, Saul's Rash Vow. Yours might title it, uh, Jonathan Eats Honey, which seems like a subplot. (laughs) Or an indie band album name, one of the two. Mine says Saul's Rash Vow. Here is... Here is both informing what has happened, and the Bible does this sometimes too. It gives you context to what has happened. So what we're going to read right now informs what's happening right now, but it's giving you some insight to say the reason it's happening the way it's happening now is because of what Saul did earlier. Um, you know, when it, it's pointing back, pointing forward at the same time. So here's what it says, verse 24. You still with me? Amen. It says, now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on the enemies. Good start. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army, this is now after. So in the morning he makes this vow. Now after the battle, the whole army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw it oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. They feared Saul. It says, but Jonathan, who's a baller, had not heard that his father had bound his people with the oath, so he reached out the end of his staff that it was in his hand, dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised it to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, um, your father bound the army under a strict oath saying cursed be anyone who eats food today that's why the men are so faint and Jonathan said bold my father has made trouble for the country remember his dad's the king right (laughs) see how my eyes brightened when I taste a little bit of this honey see how my blood sugar went up and I was in a better mood right because I taste a little bit of this honey right hypoglycemics unite you know what I'm talking about How much better would it have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines been even greater? He's like, dude, we could have killed so many more people if my father had not made a rash vow. Remember, remember the people of Israel were fleeing, right? What was happening this morning? The people of Israel were fleeing. They were running away. They didn't trust Saul. They didn't trust his leadership. There was only 600 of them. They were hiding in fear. And Saul's response to everyone's leaving me. They don't trust me. They don't was basically to say, if you eat today, I'll kill you. Until I have avenged myself on my enemies, you better not eat. How is that morale boosting? Man, we're having a tough day. Nobody eats. I, as someone who's a leader of his family, I got to say, not a good play. <laughs> leader of a church, hey, the church is having a real tough time. Nobody eats until I get what I need. You'd be like, I don't think that's good leadership. I'm hungry. Have you ever made a rash vow? right? I'm upset, right? I'm upset, so I'm never speaking to the game. Yeah, I'll forgive them, but I'm never speaking to them again. Like, never? 
That's a very rash thing to say. I'm done with that. I'm done with them forever, right? That's a very emotionally um, reactive thing to do, right? And Jonathan doesn't hear this emotionally reactive, poor leadership vow. He eats it and then tells the people, listen, we would have crushed if my dad had not responded emotionally, but had led with wisdom. We would have had a greater victory. And in fact, we learn later that because of Saul's emotional immaturity, he leads his own people towards sin. He's supposed to be leading them towards God, but because he needed to respond emotionally because of his insecurity and his fear, he he led them towards greater sin. Look at verse 31. It says, That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. It says, They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Yeah, meaning they killed them right there and literally ate them right there. Not draining the blood, not making them kosher, not cooking it, just like right there. We're so hungry. And we can get mad at the soldiers, but they're following broken leadership. Someone said to us, oh, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You've broken the faith, he, he said. He said, roll a large stone over here at once. And then Saul said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle, sheep, and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And look what it says. It's the first time he's done this. They're so hungry that when they finally get some plunder, they jump on it. So I want, I want, you, to, I want you to recognize what has happened the Philistines are not fully defeated yet. Remember, Saul's oath was that they, had, they would be defeated when he gets justice against his enemies. The Philistines are not fully defeated yet, but two different groups of people have eaten. There's the soldiers have all eaten all the plunder, and Jonathan has eaten honey. Are you with me? And so they decide, hey, listen, let's keep fighting and let's seek the Lord. So verse 36 says, Saul said, let's go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let's not leave one of them alive. So remember, Saul's oath was that, that, that you shouldn't eat until they were fully defeated. But we know right now they're not fully defeated because they want to keep fighting, right? The priest said, verse 36, let's inquire of God. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? But God did not answer that day. So Saul says, listen, let's keep fighting. Let's keep going to avenge myself on my enemies. And the priest said, well, let, listen, let's, let's seek the Lord, dude. You didn't finish the first time. Let's seek the Lord together. But it says something important at the end of verse 37. God did not answer him. Well, that's kind of a scary thing, right? Because before he didn't care what God said, but I think it's even scarier when God doesn't answer. It would have been more comfortable if he had said no, but he said nothing. It's like, okay, something's wrong, right? If he says nothing, it's like, okay, what's going on? And so verse 38, Saul says, come, all you who are leaders of the army, let's find out what sin has been committed today? So many sins, Saul. 
So as surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, if even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. Can I just, why say that? That's a bold, random addition. Even if it's Jonathan, I'm killing him. Like, dude, he's the only reason you're in this position. He's the only one listening to God literally today at all. He says, yeah, but if he messed up, we're going to kill him. It, you know, it's got to be somebody's fault. So then all, Saul said to all the Israelites, you stand over there and I and my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. They're over it. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is with me or my son, Jonathan, respond with Urim. Remember the stone I talked about in the ephod? But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Remember the other stone I talked about, right? In the ephod with the priest. They'd pull the stone out. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot then between me and, my, and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Jonathan said, I tasted honey with the end of my staff and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> I just can't with this dude. I, <laughs> can we look at this just objectively for a second and say the entire tribe of Israel has eaten before the Philistines are defeated, correct? They've all eaten. Obviously, Jonathan with the honey. But it's kind of like when you make one bad decision and then you're like, well, I'm here now. I better keep doubling down on bad decisions. At any point, Saul could have repented to God and said, Lord, we repent for not listening to you. And we sacrifice upon the altar and had the priest make a sacrifice and say, I repent. But he's like, well, it's gotta be someone's problem. It's gotta be someone else's issue. It's like, dude, you're the one who didn't listen to God. And now he's like, well, my son has to die. That's a pretty messed up family, right? The only reason that you have this victory is because of Jonathan's trust in the Lord. And now he needs to die because of an oath, not that God made, are you with me? But that Saul made over the people of Israel. Not a promise that the Lord said, not even an appeal to Yahweh, but an oath to himself for himself. And now he's going to kill his son, one of like two good leaders at the time in Israel, because of an emotional decision that he's made. Can I just say right here, that is a profound lack of emotional maturity. To react constantly, to explode emotionally, to not care about who you hurt with the things you say and the decisions you make. But I have to say, thank goodness, finally, wise men of some form of emotional and spiritual maturity step in. And they say in verse 45, it says, the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who's brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never. And look who they appeal to, not to Saul. It says, as surely as the Lord, as Yahweh lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. They say, yeah, that's neat. You made an oath, but we're appealing to Yahweh to the Lord and they rescued Jonathan from the hands of his emotionally explosive and in my opinion emotionally immature father 
this is the struggle of Saul. This is why it's called anti-hero because Saul simply reacts to what he sees. He is impatient, he is insecure, and by the very nature of that, his actions then reek of a lack of emotional maturity. What's emotional maturity? Let me, let me explain. If you haven't heard that phrase, well, we've all been given emotions, right? All of us have emotions. You're feeling emotions currently, right? We all have emotions, and emotions are good, right? Emotions are good things. You should feel emotions. They're part of you. You were created to have them. Uh, but here's the reality of life. Many things in life are good. Many of the things that God have made are good, but none of those things are God. So for example, love is good, and God is love, but we don't treat love like it's God, the same is true about emotions. Emotions come from the Lord. We're created to have them, right? They can teach us. We, it helps us understand or at least see the world around us. They begin to inform us, but they are not God. And so emotional maturity is the ability to manage our emotions and life stressors in a healthy, God-honoring way. That we would be aware of our emotions but like Saul, not, or unlike Saul, not enslaved to them. I know, again, this, this might be interesting to hear, but as believers, we are called to a greater maturity. We're called to grow. And often we see that as just an intellectual, uh, spiritual-based maturity, meaning how much of the Bible I read or know. But Scripture teaches us that we are created to grow in all areas of maturity, and that includes emotional maturity. Somebody say emotional maturity. See, emotional maturity is part of our growth as believers. You and I, follow me here, are meant to grow in maturity. The most obvious is physical. Like if you didn't physically grow, that would be the most obvious. If you were 30, but you look like you were three, we would say something is not as it's supposed to be, correct? How about intellectually? If you knew at 30, the same that you knew at three, but not anymore, you would say, mm, there was intellectually some growth barriers there that have occurred. Something's not as it should be. How about emotionally? If you responded emotionally at 30, the same way that a three-year-old does, how many of you would think that's a sign of emotional maturity? No, right? You would be shocked. And we see it all the time on the news, right? A lack of emotional maturity. Spiritual maturity, right? All of these areas that we're, we're called to grow. This is the thing about our emotions or our emotional maturity. It is a part of our life. And we are called to mature. A 30-year-old should not respond like a 13-year-old or a 3-year-old emotionally. And yet, that's not always an area that we prioritize growth in. Intellectual maturity we prioritize growth in because we're a culture that loves to know more. But emotional maturity, I don't know. But as believers, we are meant to mature. That we are not meant to respond emotionally to the wind and waves around us the same today as the day that we discovered Jesus Christ. And hopefully not the same in 10 more years of emotional growth. Are you still with me? I know I'm gonna hurt someone's feelings today, but just feel it out and you're gonna grow in emotional maturity. Ephesians 4.11 says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, 
the teachers. These are the fivefold ministry gifts. It says he gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are meant to grow in every way, including emotional maturity. Christ gave us all of these ministry gifts so that we would grow, not only in a knowledge of God, but in the practice of following him. Not only in being trans, that, sorry, that in being transformed by him, it would also transform the way we respond to the world around us, both the trials, the tribulations, the joys, and the celebrations. Listen, healthy things grow. Healthy believers grow in maturity. Are you still with me? We are created to grow in emotional maturity. And it's important because emotional maturity prevents us from being tossed by the waves. Right? It says in verse 14 that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Often this is just used for theology, saying you need to increase your doctrine. And I, I, I believe that spiritual maturity and understanding is part of that. Intellectual maturity is part of that. But there's another part, human cunning and the craftiness of deceitful schemes. That requires us to grow in Christ so that we are not tossed around by the words, the actions, and the schemes of others in the world around us. I see this constantly in social media, and I live this out. I don't know if you live this out, where you see things constantly in the words of others, and it evokes an emotional response from you. It makes you feel a certain way, whether joyful or furious. Right? I've been following a lot of news, and you see things or injustices that happen. It stirs something in you, right? And then you have to do something with that. The person who made it doesn't have to do anything with that emotion. They've just kind of been like, here you go. And now you have to process that. So every day we're facing all kinds of inputs and all kinds of effects emotionally. But at the end of the day, how do we keep ourselves from being tossed back and forth? Is it emotional? We've grown. We've strengthened ourselves. We have endurance so that whatever we face is not throwing us over here and then throwing us over here. We're happy and then we're depressed and then we're happy and then we're upset and then we're really upset and then we're kind of okay and then we're sad and then we're happy again. Are you with me? That's exhausting, but that's our world. How many of you know that's the world we live in? Can I just encourage you? And I, I'm saying this with grace. I hope it's coming across that way. Grow up. <laughs> emotionally. Grow up emotionally. Stop being tossed around by your emotions. Get off the roller coaster. Choose health. Choose growth. It's not something that's going to happen in a day, but it's something that needs to happen. How do we do it? Well, emotional maturity require, requires renewing our minds. The thinking of the world is not pro-emotional maturity. It loves to talk about it. I remember um, 
one of the guys I follow is, is Pete Scazzaro, and he wrote a great book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you've never read it, it's a fantastic book. If you're a leader, he wrote a book, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, also a great book. And he talks about when he went to launch that book, they didn't want it to call it emotionally uh, healthy spirituality because they said that terminology would just never be accepted. Now, emotional health is one of the biggest talked about and written about topics, which I find fascinating because I'm not necessarily seeing the fruit of it being the number one talked about topic, right? <laughs> I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing it in a lot of bios, but not in a lot of lives. I think in the world, our thinking has shifted even more to where we are now identified slaves of our emotions. Whatever you feel dictates who you are. And I just, I'm here to tell you that's not true. Your emotions are indicators. They're telling you something, but they are not changing and affecting your identity. You are who God says you are. You are who the word of God says you are. You are who he created you to be. And your emotions are telling you something, but they're not, they cannot define who you are. God says you are who I say you are. And so we must constantly do the sometimes difficult work of renewing ourselves and our minds in the word of God. That's why Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what's the will of God. You may discern what's good. You may discern what's acceptable. And you may discern what is perfect. Don't be conformed to the world that says, my emotions dictate my identity. Whatever I must feel, whatever I feel is now adjusting the very pillars of reality. That's simply not true. It doesn't matter how you identify. You didn't create the world. You didn't create the earth. What matters is how God identifies you. Because if your identity is just rooted in how you feel, then you are on a tragic collision course with disappointment. But if your identity is rooted in who God created you to be, then you can always be on a beautiful collision course with the embracing, loving arms of God who welcomes you and says, I love you, I created you, I know you. I celebrate you. Be renewed. See, a marker of maturity is not giving into worldly thinking. It's being renewed by heavenly thinking. And I'm, I'm here to say, when I say emotional maturity, I'm not saying it's suppressing emotions. I, I studied philosophy in university. That's actually what my undergrad is in. And a very common idea is, is kind of the stoic idea that emotions should be suppressed. Or uh, the church version where you pretend everything's great even though it's not. Right? Stoics are like, just look sad all the time then nobody knows that you're happy. And church uh, sometimes historically has been, look happy all the time, and then nobody knows that you're sad. And I think both of those are wrong. <laughs> because your emotions, again, are supposed to be telling us something. Emotional maturity is not suppressing emotions, it's surrendering emotions. You will feel anxious. That emotion will arise. But will you be anxious? Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It says, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Okay, I have one more. You guys have time for one more? Okay, I know we're running a little late today, but one more. In fact, man, you guys can come up. We'll land on this. Emotional maturity is a testimony 
Here's what's wild. In the current culture we live in, being an emotionally stable person is an absolutely punk rock thing to do. Right? It is. If you want to be countercultural, be emotionally stable. If you want to be counter to the world, be emotionally consistent, right? Stability and maturity is radical, right? The whole world has changed and and, and, and what is accepted or not accepted. But what I find fascinating is that emotional maturity is like this weird outlier and radical group. Like, what do you mean that your emotions aren't your identity? That's crazy, right? Believers, we have an opportunity here. Are you with me? Right? Think about how much greater Saul's testimony would have been if he said, I saw the enemy rallying around us, but I trusted God and I was kind of freaking out and I was kind of worried and I was discouraged, but I trusted God to be God in all things and he was. Christians, we're called to be enduring. Endurance produces faith, we're told in the word of God. It's not that we hide emotions. It's not that we put on a fake face. But when we stand in the storm and we cling to the rock of ages, it looks different than what the world around us is doing. The world around us is reacting emotionally. The world bails when it gets hard. The world quits when they just don't feel like it. But we have a testimony when we grow in emotional maturity. Katie and I, we... Uh, we, we have one of the testimonies that we share is about losing our, our first child. And uh, we, we had a really hard season. And I talk about, you know, you can feel anxious, but do you want to be and stay anxious? And we were just feeling this anxiety about, about our future and what that meant and what that looked like. And, you know, sometimes doctors aren't the most encouraging in those moments. And we were feeling anxious, but we said, you know what? Uh, we don't want to be anxious. And we got this tattoo of 1 Peter 5, 7 this knot here uh, that's first uh, Peter 5 7 says cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you that tells me two things one you will have anxieties and two you can do something with them so don't be upset if you're like man I, I get anxious I'm not saying that you're outside the will of God don't hear that I'm saying that God knows and he loves you and he's saying, but cast those anxieties onto me because I care for you. People come up and say, oh, what tattoo is your favorite? Because I've picked up a few. And, and I'll usually say, I like this tattoo. They say, why is that your favorite? Because it's not even my, my coolest one. And I'll say, well, it's my favorite because it says something. Because in a tough time, I had to trust God to be God in all things. Not trust him to be what I wanted, but trust him to be God. And not trust him just in some things. Not trust him in the easy things, but I had to trust him to be God in all things. At the end of the day, we could face it and not crumble and not be lost to depression because we could trust God to be God in all things. Your emotional maturity is a testimony. It's not stoicism and it's not being a slave. But it's saying, listen, I will trust God to be God in all things, no matter what comes. Here's how we check our emotional maturity today. You ready for this? This is for you to do in your heart, no one else. In fact, let's stand and do it together. Let, let's, let's, let's go to this moment. In fact, wherever you are, just stand and let's bow our heads together. And I just want us to check our hearts. The band's gonna lead us in singing about the Lord in just a moment. But I want us to search our hearts. This is how we're gonna end today. Just briefly, we're gonna spend some time searching our heart today. This is for you, no one else, just you and the Lord. Do I trust God to be God 
in all things. How do I know? What's a marker that I'm not the roller coaster? I'm not the up and down. Yes, I face things and I get discouraged and I get happy. I, I experience all those motions, but how do I know? You need to ask, do I trust God to be God in all things? When the storms come, when the waves rise, when the fear creeps in, do I trust God to be God in all things? When the trials come against you, when you're feeling anxious, when you're afraid, when you're angry, when the thing that you really wanted to work out did not work out, and now you're feeling discouraged, will I trust God to be God in all things? When you are tossed by the waves or when the waves come against you, will you be thrown here and fro, back and forth, or will you surrender him to Jesus, the Jesus who walked on the waves, the Jesus who commanded the storms and say, I'll trust you, God, to be God in all things. If you're here today, I just want to respond together. And then I'm going to have our prayer team just up front to pray. And our worship team is going to lead us. And if you need prayer, if you need to let anything go today, and you need to lay it to the Lord, I'm going to invite you and our team leads to come forward and receive prayer. But right now, wherever you are, if you're here today and you're saying, God, I want to trust you to be God in all things. Would you lift your hands? I want to pray for you today. God, I want to trust you to be you in all things. To not be thrown by the wind and waves, but to trust you in all things. Maybe you got some discouragements. Maybe you got some anxieties. Or maybe you're just wanting to reaffirm your commitment to the Lord. And we just lift our hands. It's a posture of surrender. God, I trust you to be God in all things. God, I trust you to be God. Some of you need to hear it again. Lord, I trust you to be God in all things. In my family, I trust you to be God. In my business, I trust you to be God in all things. In my relationships, I trust you to be God, the Most High Yahweh in all things. In my discouragements, I trust you, God, to be God in all things. Lord, I pray right now with our hands raised, we say, we trust you, God. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you begin to emplace upon our heart and release from our spirits any fear or anxiety that might come against and affirm within us a posture that says, God, I trust you to be God in all things. I pray right now for those who are wrestling with anxiety, a very real anxiety. I pray of freedom in the name of Jesus over your life, over your work, over your finances, of freedom and a trust that says, God, right now, even though it might be scary. God, you will not catch me hiding in the cave like Saul. I'm coming out like Jonathan and I'm saying I trust you to be God in all things. Give me a testimony, God. Not just a victory, but a testimony that in this season I was not thrown back and forth but I say, look, there's where I grew in emotional maturity. There's where I grew in trust. There's where I grew in faith. I wasn't commanded by my feelings. I wasn't taken over by the things I felt, but I took those very real feelings and I laid them at your feet and I said, God, I trust you to be God in all things. Right now, just wherever you are, begin to worship him, begin to praise him, begin to speak to him. He's here to meet with you and let's just worship him together. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. 
We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.